This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The crush of new COVID cases is wearing on our healthcare staff. We reached out to the Nurses Union to hear about what's happening. The Hawaii Nurses Association represents some 4,000 nurses across the state, including at Queens, Oahu's Trauma Center, and other smaller hospitals and skilled nursing facilities across the islands. We talked to HNA's head, Daniel Ross, who gave us this sobering snapshot. At Queens, we're in a staffing crisis right now. We already are. It's, it's, it's bad and it's getting worse. And it's COVID has contributed to it, but without COVID, this was happening. Um, so Queens and Straub are in crisis mode as far as the staffing goes. Our other facilities are bad. I wouldn't put them probably as crisis. Kapilani, they're working short. And our, even the skilled nursing facilities are working short. My wife works in a skilled nursing facility. She's getting doing double shifts. It's it's we're short period. Um, in places like Queens and Straub, it really makes me angry, honestly, because this is completely preventable. We're here because management refused to hire up. Even before the COVID came around the first time, we were short. We're running short because that's the way they save money. They don't want to have over. They want to have just enough. So when things go bad, you don't have enough and you, and you have trouble because it's cheaper for us to work double shifts, extra shifts, than it is to hire another full-time employee that they have to get benefits to. At one point, though, I believe Queens did bring in some traveling nurses. They rely on the traveling nurses. That's the problem, right? They don't have to pay them the benefits either. So they've always had, we have, we have in our contract, at Queens anyway, that they can only have no more than 30 travel nurses. They keep, they've kept that to 30 and gone over the 30 all the time. Every year they ask us to go over 30, so you can waive it and say, okay, we agree you can go over 30 um, because it's a need. But I told them, no, no more of that. This was before COVID. So no more of that because I told you every time, you need to hire up. We need more of a full mm-hmm. pool. 30 is, is plenty as a buffer. You can do it. So it's not every year you need to go over 30. That's ridiculous. So they were already there. Then when COVID hit, we agreed. We told them, bring in as many travelers as you can get. We're, we're fine with it. And we made a, a letter of agreement with them that whenever they're over 30 on the travelers, they will not um, daily lay off our members. So okay. we have daily low-need census. So if the census is down and the nurse gets sent home, you get, you get laid off for the day, basically. Um, so we had a provision in there. So if you're over 30, they can't low need us. Well, they did anyway. So we had grievances going. Um, they've resolved most, and there's a few of them that still are out there that haven't been resolved yet. Okay, but um, now we're seeing our census count go up again because of the variant. Yes. Now we're going. So my unit this weekend converted to a COVID unit. So tomorrow when I go to work or tonight, if I agree to come in at midnight for them, um, I'll be working with COVID patients. Because it has been, it is spreading. It, it's it's going, so they have travelers coming on an emergency basis. So they asked to put an emergency order in. So get what they did to get below thirty. They were trying to get rid of all the travelers, right? So about a week before the surge went up, we had a bunch of travelers in our COVID unit, our main COVID unit, whose contracts were expiring. They wanted to extend them. Management refused to extend them. We saw anyone with sense saw this surge coming, saw it in the mainland happening first, saw it coming here, obviously couldn't predict exactly how it would hit like that. They refused to extend the traveler's contracts, let them go. Then it starts hurting. They're like, oh, my God, we made a mistake. And they're trying emergency to, to get them back. And it's like now they've got they put in emergency orders. But it looks like the soonest they're going to get here is like the 21st or 22nd, something like that, they're telling me. I see. And so, so in the meantime... We're either working short or working doubles, picking up extra shifts. Queens has offered an incentive for people to pick up extra shifts. They're going to give you 25% um, on top of your base wage and any overtime provisions that you might hit. But just because you're picking up extra shift doesn't necessarily mean you're overtime. Most of us only work 36, so you can always pick up without being overtime, but anything over 40 by law is overtime. Okay, but what you're saying, though, is they made a mistake. Now we have to wait, and so now we're we're suffering, and and it's 
endangering people, in my opinion, not only the patients, because, but the nurses. Nurses are burnt out. They are literally burning out. I know ICU COVID nurses who are working back-to-back double shifts. That means they do a 16-hour shift, go home for eight hours, come back for another 16 hours. You cannot last doing things like that. You just, you, you just fry. You just can't do it. The frustration, you know, incentive, great. So a little extra money, you'll have people pick up ex- extra shifts. Um, but it's, it's not the answer. They needed more. And, and it was completely preventable. They, they made the mistake by letting them go. And, okay, everybody makes mistakes. But the long-term problem is what I'm angry about. It's a long-term problem. So you need more that, experienced nurses on the ground on a regular basis. Right. Yeah. Yes. I've been singing the same song for years, uh, you know, well, to you guys and to the management. Do you know how many nurses Queens has put in for? Uh, Hawaii Healthcare Association, HAH, says that the ask is in for more than 500 from all the hospitals. Yeah, that's not, but that's everybody. That's not, so Queens, I think, is a couple of hundred. But Queens is also not only getting the HAH nurses, which is, those are the FEMA nurses, right? Mm-hmm. Through, through them. They're also bringing in on on their own too. The agency nurses. I don't know the exact numbers, but I um, I, I think it's a couple of hundred. Okay. I'm not sure. But they in from where you sit, they can't come soon enough. Yes, they they should have been here a week ago. We're we're dying, literally. Every every day, I'm not exaggerating. Every day, I get texts from my manager. Anybody pick up a shift? Send out to all the people, all my coworkers on the on the unit. Can anybody pick up shift? We're desperate. We need two nurses. We need a nurse here. Staffing has nobody for us. This is a daily occurrence. I know that there are uh, high hopes uh, with your new administrator coming in, um, uh, Jill Hoggart Green. She's a nurse. Uh, yes. And uh, but what just, that just hasn't materialized. It, it hasn't yet, and, and you know that was when we're going through negotiations. I tr- I want to give them chance, and and she did do some. She she did hire bring up more people than than when she first came in. It hasn't been enough, and and I get it that the, you know, and it's not just um, Jill, but the uh, chief nursing officers also knew we deal with the chief nursing officer more often, and and they say the right things, but. And they're new, and we have to give them somewhat of a chance. But we've been dealing with this for years, literally for years. And, you know, I I need to see it. And, and I know it takes time, but I'm so worried that it's just going to be more talk and we won't see it. I mean, on, honestly, when I when I talk to I, – I deal with Kelly quite a lot. When I talk to her, it, she's, she's, it, she's doing the right things there. And mm-hmm. it says – she's saying she's doing the right things. I need to see the action of, of them there. You have to be competitive. We need to entice experienced nurses to come and work here and our experienced nurses to stay here. And right now with the working conditions where, the way they are, it's hard to keep them. People are wanting yeah. to leave. People are leaving. Yeah. They can go get a job with agencies. And then where are you at with your contracts since COVID so the started? the Queen's contract ratified okay. right before all this happened. So we're we're still working out the details of implementation on it. Um, okay. And, and it was a it was actually a close one. It's is... the best, most favorable contract we've had in quite a while. Okay. But because of the um, extreme circumstances of this last year and a half, it it didn't pass by a very large majority. And then uh, where are you at with HPH? HPH, they're in between contracts right now. They're, um, the next one up is next year. Straub, I believe, is next. So Pialani settled a while back. Wilcox settled. And um, so the next one will be Straub. And I think that's um, not this fall, but next fall. Gotcha. Okay. Well, and on top of it all, this the vaccine mandate is so divisive, not just with the general public, but even nurses. Because we have our pocket of nurses I don't know how big it is, but they're very vocal, who don't want to get vaccinated. I know nurses who work in the COVID units who don't, who don't believe in this vaccine. Personally, I do. Our official thing is encourage it. I encourage everybody to get vaccinated, but we're against the mandatory. And so they put out these announcements of mandatory, and so we're, we've got demand to bargains. We've got a bargain with HPH and with Queens about the vaccine. We're not saying so what, we, what we're trying to do, the, the angle is to bargain what the exemptions are and and what it takes to get an exemption. Because the uh, Queens, they didn't really, they weren't specific, 
HPHS was pretty specific, but very onerous, something very difficult to accomplish. If you look at their medical exemption, the physician is supposed to identify what component of the vaccine they're allergic to, and it's like way over the top that the physician's going to fill that out for you. Well, um, what, what do you say, though, to the general public, the patients that come in that expect mm-hmm. that all the personnel is vaccinated? I, that's right. I said it's very controversial, right? It's hard. And, and I personally, my personal belief is I believe in the vaccine, too. Um, but I also believe in, in people's rights on to make decisions for themselves. So what I would say is that we wear all the protective equipment. And then mm-hmm. when we're wearing all that equipment, it's not only protecting us because we're wearing the N95s, not just the, the mm-hmm. surgical mask. It's also protecting you. So if I'm wearing N95 and if I'm doing my precautions properly, it's going to protect me from infecting anybody else if I happen to be asymptomatic and uh, um, an asymptomatic carrier, which, as you probably know, you can be vaccinated and be an asymptomatic carrier very easily, right? It's like the, they say, yeah, having a vaccine decreases the chance you'll get it, but you can still get it. And if you do get it, it decreases the chances that you'll be seriously ill, right? So, yes, get the vaccine. I encourage you to do it. But it doesn't, it's not this silver bullet fixes everything. That was Daniel Ross of the Hawaii Nurses Association. You know, we reached out to both Hawaii Pacific Health and the Queen's Health Systems for comment. Here's what Kelly Johnson, the chief nursing officer for Queen's Medical Center, had to say this morning. You know, as of this morning, Queen's Health System has somewhere close to 100 COVID positive patients. And there's no doubt that capacity is a concern. However, we are committed to caring for all of our patients that need the services, and that will test our capacity across the entire island. We learned a great deal from the previous surges throughout the pandemic. If you'll remember, we had similar challenges um, in the other uh, surges. They're, They're not entirely predictable, as we know. This surge is different. Hawaii is open for business, and we continue to see trauma patients. Our emergency room sees other than COVID patients. And we have our community members are still out and about, and there has been some community transition. So the Delta variant is of concern as it spreads more rapidly than previous variants we've seen. So this has created a unique and increased need for nurses in a short period of time, both locally and nationally. We've been recruiting nurses on an ongoing basis prior to the COVID pandemic as well as during the COVID pandemic. Uh, Between March of 2019 and March of 2021, we hired nearly 100 additional full-time nurses, and those were new nurses to the system. These nurses support staffing in all areas, including caring for our COVID patients. As you may or may not know, we built a specific COVID unit at the very beginning of the surge. Our nursing turnover is low compared to national average. We're around 7 to 8%. So we're merely increasing to uh, meet the demand. And the concern that uh, Daniel Ross has about they're not going to get help until the 21st is what he's heard. We have worked with Hawaii Emergency Medical Association and FEMA, and we are bringing on an additional, you know, 80-plus nurses. They will be arriving on the 23rd. We, we also requested respiratory therapists. We are working with another mainland agency. We actually have extended some of our travelers. Uh, I think what, what the challenge, you know, that Dan brings up, we have a lot of contractual language that we're trying to navigate. He, HNA purposely restricted our number of travelers to 30 during our recent negotiations. So we're trying to navigate bringing people on and communicating with the union about contract language. So we are bringing on a mass of traveler nurses from the mainland, including the, uh, or on top of the FEMA nurses, and we continue to hire to, to fill permanent shift positions. So what's the total count? So we have ordered, if you will, mm-hmm. 140 nurses through FEMA, okay. nurses and respiratory therapists, so probably eight of those are respiratory therapists. Okay. And then we've put in requests for about 60 from the mainland. We've got almost all of those filled. The agency? The agency, okay. yes. So we have additional travelers coming on. We also have at least a dozen travelers that extended their stays. 
that were currently on staff just for, you know, routine leaves of absence and things that we were covering. But the soonest then that there'd be help, you said the 23rd is when the FEMA batch comes? So from outside nursing, we've also offered a nursing incentive here. There's financial benefit to part-time nurses to pick up shifts, and we've been very, very successful this first week. We've also closed down elective surgery and are deploying our, our nurses from our surgical services who can be redeployed. We still have trauma coming in. We still have people coming in with urgent needs for surgeries. So we can't completely shut down our operating rooms, but we have slowed the pace in the operating room by um, eliminating elective surgeries. And currently we just deployed um, some of our procedural nurses to the emergency department this morning to help with our our capacity down there. Safety is our top priority. We want to provide the level of care we can for our patients. We are in the middle of a pandemic on an island, and Mm -hmm. so it is a challenge, as we found before. We don't have any PPE shortages. We have everybody all hands on deck deploying people where we can to help. And then anything you want to say on the vaccine front? Well, I, you know, I think that we do want to promote vaccine. What we're seeing on our, in our hospitalized patients is the absolute majority, uh, about 97% of our inpatients are non-vaccinated. So we know the science is showing us that vaccines work, and we want to encourage everyone that can, unless they have a medical reason not to do so, should get vaccinated. That's going to stop the um, deadly spread and allow us to keep our community open and our community safe. That was Kelly Johnson, Chief Nursing Officer for Queens. We also did hear back this morning from Hawaii Pacific Health. It echoed Queens' concern over staffing and the need for relief. It said it, too, has made arrangements for additional staff and traveling nurses for its hospitals and is working with the Healthcare Association for additional staffing aid through FEMA. listening to The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Guess what? It's time for your backyard quiz. Legends abound in Hawaii, and so for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know what you know about the mythology surrounding the tiny opihi, also known by its English name, the limpet. Several varieties can be found in our islands, clinging to rocks where the shoreline is most dangerous. They were a staple for Hawaiians living near the shore and prized for their shells. According to celebrated Hawaii scholar Mary Kavanapukui, there are several legends surrounding picking opihi. One says, don't make a rattling noise with the shells or you'll be taken by a spirit and either dropped a mile inland or a mile out to sea. It's also kapu to eat opihi on the shoreline while others are gathering more. And whether you believe the tales, well, it doesn't diminish the fact that harvesting the delicacy is treacherous. Uh, New opihi gatherers are constantly warned never to turn their back to the ocean, but to always watch it so they're not caught by crashing waves with the strength to drag them out to sea. Bakui says the gathering of the shellfish is so dangerous, the opihi were given a nickname. Do you know what it is? Bonus points if you can give it to us in Hawaiian and English. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. First one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. A surge in COVID cases is also exposing a shortage of quarantine rooms for COVID patients in the islands. That is the subject of today's Reality Check. Honolulu Civil Beat Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this story is one that Anita Hofschneider uh, wrote for you folks. Right. Anita's been covering uh, the health beat of late, and she, as you might imagine, is very busy, uh, particularly today. And I'll explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But the story that we have as our lead story today is exactly that on how because of the Delta variant really causing this record spike in new cases, as well as increasing the positivity rate, particularly on Oahu and the Big Island, Hawaii County, there is a shortage of, of, of rooms in order for patients with COVID to, to quarantine or to isolate. Don't confuse this with ICU, right? Uh, mm-hmm. We're not talking about those units. We're talking specifically about quarantine or isolate. And it particularly affects people that live in large uh, and multi-generational households, which, as we all know, because of the cost of living, uh, is, is a very common thing here. And so she found out that on Oahu, we really have uh, at least 30 people are on a wait list to get into uh, the 54, 64 rooms that are dedicated uh, to, uh, to these units, quarantine and isolation. By the way, that's less than one-fourth the number that were made available last time. And by the way, we're talking, in many cases, hotel rooms. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Here's the deal. The hotel rooms were all empty last year at this time, right? Because tourism was pretty much shut down. But as we all have experienced, tourism is coming back in droves. And, of course, hotels are reluctant uh, to use those rooms when they can be using them to to, to house tourists. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, no, I was looking online. I was really shocked back in July that the first openings were like in September. So, yeah, those rooms are booked. They're spoken for. Right. So 57 out of the 64 rooms for these purposes on Oahu uh, are in use right now. The others are being cleaned and prepared for new patients. Uh, On Hawaii County, there is a similar problem. It's even worse. There are no rooms available at this time. Uh, Anita did speak with a spokesperson for the Mayor Mitch Ross office, and uh, they did have a contract for 119 rooms, but that contract expired July 31st. And of course, that also comes as as we are spiking, as mentioned earlier, on cases and positivity. Uh, Things not nearly as troublesome on Maui or on Lanai or on Kauai. There are still rooms available for isolation and for quarantine, uh, but as we all know, this is a rapidly developing story, and that could be impacted going forward. Yeah. So, I mean, what do people do then if they need mm. rooms, right? Oh. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're if you're in a crowded household, where are you going to go? I mean, you can't rent a hotel room on your own. You may not have the means to do it. It's not like everybody has a special room set aside with everything that you need. Uh, Anita pointed out in her story that this is particularly a concern for the Pacific Islander communities, Native Hawaiians, uh, Micronesians, Samoans. Uh, even though they make up about 4% of the population, that doesn't include the Native Hawaiian, but other Pacific Islanders, 18% of the cases have been among Pacific Islanders. And so these are the same groups that often uh, congregate in, in multi-generational households. And, and so you can't just go somewhere, but you don't want to stay home and infect you know, your loved ones, your friends, your family. So this is really a conundrum for a lot of people. So people are actually calling and requesting for help for, you know, isolation rooms, but I guess they've just got to wait? Well, here's another development. Anita did talk to the Department of Health, and there is a crisis hotline for behavioral health problems. And since last year, a lot of people have been using that for COVID. You know, they're stuck at home. They, they need food. They need medication. But now the Department of Health is saying, whoa, that, that call line, which, again, is for behavioral health, is overwhelmed right now. Try not to call that line unless you have behavioral health problems. Don't call specifically for COVID. So 
So there's that challenge as well. I should let you know, just every time you and I talk about COVID, news is developing almost by the hour. There is another press conference scheduled for today at 1.30. Governor Ige is expected to update uh, and perhaps have an addition to the executive order, a new executive order out. The four county mayors have been invited to participate. We don't know what that's uh, going to entail. We do know that Governor Ige did say just yesterday that he was considering more restrictions on social gatherings. Uh, we don't know for sure, but but stay tuned. Uh, and as you can imagine, we will be covering that conference. I'm sure you guys will be covering it as well. Yes. And, you know, I just think, gosh, you know, if they do come down with the more restrictions on gatherings indoors, you know, what does that mean to businesses like Oh, the ones that put on the luau uh, for mm. for the tourists, right? Because those have been r- very popular, you know, this summer because they're outdoors generally. Uh, but right. still, the large numbers, um, you know, it's got to be a concern for them because I'm sure people have booked these, you know, the reservations. So what happens? Exactly. I'm sure Anita and Civil Beat will continue to report, and I'll be here to help as much as I can. But uh, new developments, literally, and I hate to use the word literally, (laughs) but every day we are seeing new developments almost by the hour. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Read Anita Hopschneider's full story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai, celebrating 60 years, featuring Daikin air conditioners. Learn more about Daikin at CostcoHawaii.com. Tucker Carlson goes to Budapest. The Fox News personality's trip to Hungary highlights a high-profile embrace of Viktor Orban's regime by influential U.S. conservatives. But Carlson isn't the only one, and he's not the first either. We'll take a look at the links between American conservatism and Hungarian authoritarianism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch and Sunday brunch at the Homa Cafe, along with evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Details at honolulumuseum.org. Just starting in-person classes last week, a Windward Oahu Charter School reported three positive COVID-19 cases. We reached out to the Hawaii State Public Charter School Commission to learn about what it's hearing from its 37 charter schools. Its COVID cases are reported to both the Departments of Health and Education, but they're not compiled on any public website. This morning, we talked to the commission's interim deputy director, PJ4, about the protocols for charter schools. The way our schools tend to approach it is, is they're, they're, our charter schools are community-oriented, right? The intent behind them is they're an independent state agency, but they, they serve their community, right? They're designed to be in place to meet the needs of their community in a different way than, say, a regular DOE school. And so they report to their constituents, essentially, right? So if most of the schools are very good about notifying families, just like DOE schools, I think, probably any principal or any agency for that matter. It's like if you have someone, you don't name anybody, but you, let's say, hey, we've had an identified case, we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, and whatever actions we're going to take. That's typically what the schools have been doing. And what is the snapshot uh, for the charter schools? I understand that there were some cases that popped up, oh, I think on the, like, the second day of class last week. I believe we've had nine schools report cases on campus, and I, whether that's student or teacher, I, I don't know specifically. But then, as I said, I just turned on my email this morning. It looks like we got one notification later last night. So maybe 10 schools that I'm aware of right now. Okay. And then do we have any idea what the numbers are at each school? Uh, usually with our schools, it's, it's been one or two children or staff. 
that we know about. So it's not many people. We don't have any reports of like large outbreaks at a school, anything like that. Our schools are fairly responsive. So they're able, because they're smaller, most of them, they're able to react quickly and keep things contained. And they've done a good job of following DOH guidelines and trying to make sure there's correct and proper mitigation efforts and keeping bubbles together. Because again, many of our schools are a bit smaller than, say, the DOE schools. So you have less kids that we're talking about or less teachers. I think I did see something on the news last week, though. Uh, There were a couple of cases at uh, the school there uh, over in Lanikai, the charter school there. Yeah, Ka'ohau. And that a number of folks, think half the class, I think, was quarantined. Is that was that accurate? I think I think Winston. Yeah, I think what Winston said. Uh, he, he did an interview the other day, I believe, on the news. So yes, they Winston were able Sakurai. to. Um, they do their best to do some contract contact tracing um, because our schools have to do that themselves. So they they make phone calls, they check in, and they let parents know. Plus, they're also quite ready to provide any distance learning options necessary. So the intent is, even if there is an identified case, we're still providing instruction. Our schools are are ready for that. Each school, like you said, is is independent and Mm -hmm. they run things differently than, let's say, the DOE would. But I guess that's the beauty is that they're small schools and they can pivot, you know, like we have seen with the private schools. Correct. Where they've been able to manage their numbers and be in class, you know, Mm -hmm. since last fall. Yes, and parents are, have the opportunity to address governing boards, and the governing boards work with the directors and principals slash CTOs, the various titles that we have, and they're able to work with the community. So if parents are interested, I think Kaohao was one. They were one of the first schools last year to try and get back into as much in-person learning as possible. Parents were very strongly voiced in that direction. And so the director, Winston, who I think you saw on the news, worked with them and they were able to do it. So at this point, as cases have been rising on Oahu in particular, but across the state, he was able to work with his team and his teachers and his parents. And they made some good calls and hopefully they've contained it. Yes, I was pleasantly surprised to see Winston Sakurai there uh, because I remember him uh, on the school board. Yeah, many years he's a good ago. leader. You know, when we talked to the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools, I know Phil Bossert had mentioned that they had a mm-hmm. number of small schools that were, at the time anyway, before this surge, not planning on a mask mandate indoors. And I don't know if any of the charter schools have adopted that. No, so you have to remember, our schools are public schools, right? So they are responsive to the DOE the Department of Health guidelines, right? And the Department of Health guidelines um, were just recently updated. And one of the things they make sure is that uh, masking up indoors is is required. Uh, and so, again, our, our schools are public schools. They're just charter schools, but they still need to follow those Department of Health guidelines. So our schools are following those guidelines. Okay. So while they have some independence, they are following the mask mandates uh, and the distancing. Yeah. The independence comes around delivery of instruction, right? So do we need to quickly pivot and, you know, offer distance learning? Do we need to do some kind of a blended model? What can we do to keep things safe? And also, obviously, delivery of instruction, right? What kinds of models, whether it's already like we have a couple schools that are blended or do we have AINA-based or language-based or Hawaiian immersion, Hawaiian culture-based, et cetera? Okay, but I guess that's the advantage that you have. You're small, and you can tailor the needs of your school. Mm -hmm. Our our volunteer governing boards have been working overtime with our school directors throughout this pandemic, and uh, our our poor volunteer governing boards, I don't think ever thought they would be getting into this kind of situation, but they have really stepped up to the plate and done a great job working with our directors and to to help um, make sure they follow all the proper statutes and and guidelines and laws that they have to follow when running governing board meetings and also making decisions to help meet the needs of the community and the students and their staff. I mean, our schools work really hard to do that as well. Here from the commission standpoint, I mean, we work a little differently than, say, a, a complex area or something like that. So from our end, we're super proud of our folks. Every one of them, every one of the 37 schools is working as hard as possible to help meet the needs of the kids in their community and the families. And not just meet the needs academically, but but health and safety-wise as well. So um, our, our folks have put in a lot of time and a lot of effort. And like I said, not just the, the, the paid staff, but our, our volunteer governing board members as well. And so um, we, from our end, are super proud of the work uh, 
our, our teachers and our our administrators and uh, other staff and governing boards put in to try and help provide at least some semblance of uh, stability to to everyone during this this crazy time. Kids kids are pretty resilient, but as we're seeing right now, right, it's starting to get in, into that realm. And so our schools will continue to work keep our 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 cakey safe. Uh, it's it's really an important piece for us. And our staff. I mean, I, I know our our principals are working really hard to keep our, our not just our children, but our, but our staff as well safe and healthy. We want everyone to be healthy. That was PJ Four, interim deputy director of the Hawaii State Public Charter School Commission. listeners to share their thoughts about stories heard on our show through our talkback line. After our segments covering the surge in COVID numbers and the discussion of vaccine mandates, we got this. Hello, my name is Don Rigomiro. I live in Haiku, Hawaii, and I am absolutely against a mandated vaccine. I think people should have choice about what they put in their body. This is not Russia. It's not North Korea. There's not a communist dictatorship. We should have absolute choice. And if we want the vaccine, then we should get it. I mean, it seems like there's plenty of vaccines available right now. And if we choose to not inject a non-FDA-approved thing into our body because there hasn't been a test on it, we have that right as well. And uh, to force people to get vaccinated, I think, is a very Norwellian, authoritarian approach, and I don't believe in it at all whatsoever. Thank you. Absolutely not. There should be no mandatory vaccine or mask ever in the history of humankind. Thank you very much. Calling from Maui County, this is Zoe. Thank you. Aloha, this is Leon from Maui. No, man, not mandated. I got Moderna, and I still think people should have a choice. Hi, this is Ron from Maui. I am vehemently opposed to mandatory vaccines. I think that everybody should have a free choice. This is not a fascist country yet, and it needs to remain that way. Mahalo. And following our series on the history and future of Windward Oahu's haiku stairs, Kay Lynch had this to say, one great benefit of the haiku stairs is that hikers gain access to spectacular views without tearing up the native ground cover. Overuse and subsequent erosion have turned many ridge trails on Oahu into mudslides. By contrast, the ridge vegetation below the stairs is undisturbed and can be studied and appreciated. It would be crazy to take out the haiku stairs and open the trail to abuse. In a better world, every ridge trail would be protected by stairs. We must resolve the access issues and reopen the haiku stairs. Thank you. And Jeff Pompadour was a supplier who used an old access road during the uh, building of the H3 tunnel. He shared this. Uh, Aloha. I have heard no one speak about the old H3 construction road from the windward side, bottom of Lake Lake, all the way to the H3 tunnel, which takes you past the stairway to heaven. Access to this abandoned road might be a challenge, but maybe easier than fighting with homeowners seeking to maintain their quiet enjoyment of their neighborhood. Maybe reviving this old road can allow access to the stairway to heaven and satisfy all concerned. Mahalo. Thanks for the feedback. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reach out via social media on Facebook or Twitter or call our talkback line 792-8217.
today's Backyard Quiz. We were testing your knowledge of the Hawaiian limpet, more commonly known to locals as the opihi. The tiny creatures live under their dome-shaped shell, clinging to rocks along our island's shorelines where the waters are the roughest. Among the varieties that live in our state, the opihi alinalina, the favorite among locals and found only where the waves are consistently rough. And then there's the opihi koala, which are found on rocks in deep water. In ancient days, they were beloved as food and were reportedly the most commonly eaten shellfish in Hawaii. While most ate them raw or salted, some would also boil them to make a broth for the sick or the very young. Babies were often fed the soft organs with sweet potatoes or poi. In addition, their shells made good tools for scooping, peeling, and scraping because of their sharp edges. For all the life that they provide, the process of gathering them has led to many deaths because they're only found uh, on rocks where the sea is roughest. Many have been swept out by strong surf. It's because of that kind of danger involved in harvesting opihi. The, at Hawaiian scholar Mary Kavanapukui says locals called it he'ia make, or the fish of death. And congrats to Dean from Palolo. He knew that. <laughs> he's an opihi lover. And he says he's risked his life many times for the delicacy. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipubradio.org. Sounds like thunder. Gotta head for the high ground. White water coming. No fooling around. Be man in the sun. Be man, grab your bank and run. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Par Hawaii, an energy company, with their employees supporting local nonprofits such as Navian Hawaii. Learn more at parhawaii.com. Hey, it's Courtney Thomas from the membership team here at HPR. We're currently conducting a survey of all our station listeners and members. Your input guides the station and helps us plan for the coming months and years. So if you haven't already, check your email inbox for the survey link or head to hawaiipublicradio.org survey. Your input really helps guide this station. And as always, mahalo for your support. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Waimea Valley on the north shore of Oahu, a botanical garden and cultural site featuring La Ohana Day for Kama'aina and military every third Sunday of the month. WaimeaValley.net. Prevention. That is critical in fighting the wildfires we have been seeing on the mainland and here in the islands. Last week's fire on Hawaii Island will go down as the largest to date. It burned at least 40,000 acres and claimed two houses. We talked to Michael Walker and Clay Traubernick about the push for prevention. Walker is with the Division of Forestry and Wildlife in the Department of Land and Natural Resources. And Traubernick, his expertise is in wildland fire management. He's with the University of Hawaii's College of Tropical Agriculture. Walker starts off talking about two competitive grant programs to help reduce the risks of a wildfire. Uh, those programs are now open to 13 western states and the Pacific territories. It's a competitive grant process. The funds are up to $300,000 with a one-to-one -one matching. And the funds are for outreach and education, fire prevention, as well as uh, what we like to call fuel reduction projects, where you can install fire breaks or you can reduce fuels by putting in a shaded fuel break or uh, a grazing program or something like that. Well, I, I think, you know, the fires uh, are top of mind. We saw what happened on the Big Island, you know, and we're watching what's happening in California. Clay, I don't know if you want to jump in here just about how critical this is. Yeah, it's scary. What we're seeing is just the limits of, of suppression, right? Like what that, that sort of reactive response to these fires and that, you know, when, when that's all we're doing uh, to respond to these things. In, in other words, when we're not proactively 
reducing risk and kind of mitigating risk. We're seeing what, what happens when we're running up to the limits of a, of a more reactive response, which is essentially fire suppression. And so, you know, these things are basically running away from us. And we saw the same things, uh, you know, on, on West Oahu in 2018, on Central Maui 2019. Um, last year, there was huge fires on Koalave. Obviously, you're really <laughs> restricted as to what you can do there. Um, and then now on the Big Island. And so it really makes a pretty strong case so that if you don't want to see these landscapes burn up, you need to take action before the fires start. Our forests are home to a lot of our endangered species. And so if we can take preventive measures now, we don't lose those habitats. Yeah. And I mean, and beyond that, like we're still sort of going to try to understand what the extent of damage to forest cover was from this fire. But you know, most of what burned was grassland, but beyond, you know, native forest impacts, we're talking about, you know, really vulnerable soil and erosion impacts in these areas. So that, that landscape becomes incredibly vulnerable to erosion. And so if we get hit with a rainstorm after events like this, or when we get hit with rainstorms, we should probably correct that because it happens. It just exposes all that soil to rainfall, which then gets carried down into the marine ecosystems. And now what we're hearing now from folks on the ground on the Big Island is just the wind erosion is, is terrible right now. So we're actually losing soil off of that site. And that actually can have some pretty serious impact in terms of what we could do in the future, right, to mitigate this thing. And I, by that, I mean, like, our ability to reforest areas in the future is going to be hampered by these post-fire impacts. And, Mike, I don't know, talk about, you know, where we've had some of this restoration funding, uh, you know, these programs in place. The WUIA grants program is a competitive grant process. So sometimes mm-hmm. Hawaii competes well enough to get the grants and other times not. Wainai Kai Forest Reserve has gotten two of these grants in the past for their shaded fuel break that goes up into the forest reserve and is right by Kaala Farms in the back of Wainai Valley. And then Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization has gotten a couple in the past as well for outreach programs as well as a you know small fuel reduction project that occurred. And also Pu'uvava has also on the, on Hawaii Island has received a WUI grant to do uh, fuel reductions. Currently, right now, I don't have a fuel reduction budget at all. And while my suppression budget has been increased. Uh, significantly by the legislature in the past few years. What I'm really looking for now is some state funds so that we don't have to rely on the competitive grant process in order for us to manage these fuels on a landscape basis. And then, Clay, talk about the trends that you're seeing. I mean, this we just had a big climate report out this week. People are sounding the alarm. Yeah. So for Hawaii... You know, if you asked me five years ago whether climate change is affecting our fires right now, I would probably have been a bit skeptical. But honestly, just from talking with firefighters uh, over the past couple of years and, and what they've been seeing and, and saying that they just have not experienced these kinds of fires or this extreme and uh, fire behavior and this kind of intensity in their careers, I think we're definitely sort of over that over that precipice in terms of, the, of these fires being affected by climate change. And then, you know, what we're, what we're really seeing is just the hotter weather, pushing down humidities, really, really dry conditions. And, um, you know, it just allows these fires to burn so fast through these grassy fuels. There's a kind of flip side to that, too, is, is as rainfall becomes less predictable, what we get are these rain, heavy rainfall events, which actually increase the amount of these fuels out there, right? So these grasslands respond really rapidly to, to available rainfall that increases the amount of fuel there is to burn. And then when it's followed by these uh, these drought events, that those fuels, they cure and dry out extremely rapidly. And so it just creates this incredible vulnerability uh, of, of these landscapes and communities in the, to the fire risk around them. And so that's just going to basically make things harder. It's going to... I guess very briefly, it reinforces the importance of doing things prior to the fire, right? We can't, it's going to limit, place more constraints on the ability of firefighters to suppress these things and just make conditions more dangerous for them. And, you know, right now, you just can't keep 
stating this, that all of the burden falls on their shoulders right now. It's, it's all on them when fires break out because we're doing very, very little prior to these fires or, you know, happening. So to reduce that risk. One thing that I don't know surprised me, I guess, is it just seems so windy lately. The wind is probably one of those. I mean, I don't think that there's any research that I know of, at least, that's attributing windy days um, to, to climate change. But it's definitely one of these factors where in combination with drier, you know, hotter temperatures, which dry out the fuels more, more rapidly, and then you, you add wind to that equation. And, it's, it's, again, they're just very, very difficult to, to contain these wildfires. They move so fast. We're seeing them jump highways, and which also speaks back to Mike's point in the sense of these different ways of dealing with the fuels out there, like fire breaks are one of these strategies that under these high wind days and really dry conditions aren't really going to be adequate, right? So we need to be thinking about longer term strategies, working with ranchers, for example, to kind of get grazing in places where, where it's appropriate and we can do it. And then, you know, thinking longer term about altering these fuels to something that's less likely to burn, which is really where um, reforestation comes into play. And Mike, so who are you looking for uh, to apply for, for these grants? So these grants are open to state agencies, DLNR itself, but also Department of Hawaiian Homelands is also eligible. County governments are eligible for these grants, as well as private citizens. And we're particularly like to see folks um, from the ranching community, as well as state agencies like ADC, they were able to get an application together. It would, it would uh, help out them, and it would help out the community as a whole. That was Mike Walker and Clay Trowernick talking to us about how important it is to put efforts into reducing the risk of wildfires. Okay, we're all pal now. Tomorrow, we plan to spend the hour talking with U.S. Representative Ed Case. We welcome your input and questions. We'd love to hear from you. Share your comments or questions by calling our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Or just join us live and ask your questions. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.